All right, well, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, then you know that we've spent the last few weeks really introducing a great big transformational idea that we're hoping God will take and use to capture us, and having captured us then, to form us, to mold us, to shape us, and to make us to be more like Jesus by the end of this year than we are today. And you know what it is. You know that the idea is simply that life is mission and that by life I mean both the eternal life that is ours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and very significantly, I mean also our everyday life. Every moment of our everyday life, all of which belongs to God. And so if you've been with us, you understand all that, you get all that. If you've not been with us and you're just kind of joining us today, let me try to give you a picture of what that might look like in real life, because I think that it looks like me and it looks like you waking up in the morning and saying, okay, God, good morning, Lord. My life is not my own. I don't belong to me. I belong to you. Take some faith to say that. In fact, it takes a lot of faith to say that. But that's the starting point. Is it not? It's the coming to grips with the realization that, you know what, this life that we are clinging to, this life that we want to hang on to, this life in all of its forms, marriage, parenting, resources, time, talent, all of this stuff that we just, we've got our fingers, nails just deeply down into, and God at times comes to us oftentimes through suffering and pries our fingers loose of one at a time. That life that we believe or at least live as though is ours isn't. It's his. And that's true by virtue of creation. He is our creator God, is he not? He's the one who has authored our life. He has given us every gift, every talent, every heartbeat, every breath, every bit of energy, every opportunity, everything. So then, isn't it his? But then beyond that, he's redeemed us. If you have faith in Christ, you've been bought with a price. We've looked at that these last few weeks. The price of the blood of Jesus Christ. And you are His. Good morning, Lord. I'm not my own. I belong to you. And it's us confessing as well that that's actually a good thing. That's, I think, kind of the hard part. Because again, we're like, ah, and we want to control it. We want to plan it. We want to put our agenda on it. We want to live it the way that we want to live it. And it's a good thing, Lord, that I belong to you. I mean, logically, we don't have a problem with that. It's emotionally that we have a problem with that. Logically, that makes sense. The all-wise God is a better plan for Tom than the not-so-wise Tom. The all-knowing God or the not-so-much-knowing Tom. The all-good God or the not-really-very-good Tom. The all-loving God or the maybe-not-as-loving-as-I-ought-to-be Tom. It's kind of like math, you know. It's, it's not difficult. You can figure that out. It all adds up and it, it makes a tremendous amount of sense, but we wrestle with that. We want to lay hold of our lives. We want to live them the way that we want to live them. And here's the reality about that. Left to ourselves, if our life belongs to us, we are going to pour ourselves passionately into things that will in the end die and not matter. Everything in this life is dying and deteriorating. Everything, everything, everything. It's fleeting. It's like sand through your fingers. But when it's good morning, Lord, I don't belong to me, I belong to you, and that's a good thing. He's going to take our lives and he's going to invest our lives by his spirit, it's spirit-led, and by his spirit's power, it's spirit-empowered, he's going to take our lives and invest our little fleeting tiny lives in things that in the end will never die and ultimately alone matter. 
So, good morning, Lord. I don't belong to me, I belong to you, that's a good thing. We've traveled some distance right there, haven't we? So now here I am. What do you want to do? Here is my marriage, here is my parenting, here is my business, here are my relationships, here is my reputation, here is my time, here is my talent, here is my treasure, here is all that you've given to me in grace. How do you want to use me to take your gospel mercies, real and practical help to people who have needs, and your gospel message, apart from which the world is lost, not only to my little world, the people with whom I will work, live, and play today, not only to the city in which this church has been planted, but even to the ends of the earth. I mean, God, you're a global God. You have a global mission. It's a to the ends of the earth mission. Okay, well, fine. What does that look like for me today? What does that look like in my life? Here am I. Send me. Life is mission. And what we're going to see today as we return to our study of the book of Acts, written by Luke, and in which he gives to us a picture of the early church, a picture of this people who are coming to grips with this, who are coming to see what this looks like, is that life is mission, but that it's a mission that we are to live out together. In other words, I'm not meant to live my life as mission without you, and you're not meant to live your life as mission without me, and we are not meant to live our life as mission without, frankly, everyone else here who calls Rio their church and is all in on the idea that life is mission. And not only are we not meant to, we can't. That's one of the things we'll see today. God is not in this world collecting up a bunch of individuals. God is calling out of this world one people, a diverse group of people, Every language, every nation, every race, every tribe, every culture, every age of man. But one people, one Savior, one gospel, one spirit, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. A diverse group that he makes one as we are conformed to the one image of his one son. And he's given us as a people his mission, and we're to do it together. So we pick up our study today in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, and hopefully you've studied through this already in your personal worship time. But Luke says this, he says, and they devoted themselves. And before we go any further, just in case you haven't been on the journey with us, I want to tell you who the they and themselves are. The they and themselves that he's talking about, first of all, are the 120 disciples of Jesus who were there in the city of Jerusalem, who went up onto the Mount of Olives and gathered together with Christ, where he then commissioned them to take this gospel to the very ends of the earth and watched him then ascend into heaven. Pretty cool to be part of that 120. That same 120 then came back into the city. They gathered in the upper room where they'd been meeting, maybe staying, maybe sleeping as well. And they waited for and they prayed for the Holy Spirit. Why? Because, again, it's a spirit-led, spirit-empowered mission that they've been called, that we've been called to go out on. And the Spirit came, guys, and we've seen how the Spirit then drove them out into the streets of Jerusalem, drove them, I think, to Jerusalem's temple. My speculation is at the southern steps, miraculously proclaiming a crucified and risen Jesus Christ, and miraculously proclaiming it in all of the languages of the nations under heaven, many of which, or people from which, 
had all gathered in the city for this particular feast time called the Feast of Weeks. So in other words, Jewish people from all the nations under heaven with their unique languages and cultures were all in the city when this moment occurred. And as they hear the 120 proclaiming Christ in their unique language, they're realizing, hey, something supernatural is going on here. Something is really unique. And they begin to gather around these guys. And Peter then, realizing that the Lord has given him a great crowd and a great message and even maybe a natural amphitheater as they gather above him on this massive staircase, has this uh uh-oh moment where he realizes, oh, wow, (laughs) I'm going to have to preach a sermon here. And, you know, like he doesn't have notes. And notes help, I'm not going to lie. And he goes for it. Given the opportunity to speak of Christ to people who need Christ, he speaks of Christ. There's a lesson there. And 3,000 of them that day come to faith in Jesus and are baptized. As we said last week, that is not a bad start to the church in Jerusalem. So when Luke comes to us and he says, and they devoted themselves, that they and themselves that he's talking about are really, at least initially, the 3,120 people that we've seen now who have become followers of Christ. And he tells us that they were a devoted people. And I want to unpack a little bit, at least, what it was that they were devoted to. And I want you to ask yourself, am I devoted to this and then to this and then to this and so forth? So he comes to us and he says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Okay, so what is that? Well, from our perspective, that's the New Testament. We have the apostles' teaching. And you're like, all right, well, then what about the Old Testament? Were they not devoted to that? Well, no, of course they were. They were Jewish people from all over the world who had gathered together. They had already bought into the Old Testament. The Old Testament was their Bible. The Old Testament was the Bible of the apostles. When Peter preached last week, if you were with us, he's quoting from the Old Testament. Joel, David, the Old Testament was the Bible of Jesus. Listen to his messages and look for the quotations. As it was in the days of Noah, he'll say. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days, he'll say. Look, these people were all in on the Old Testament, okay? What this is telling us is that they were then also all in on the new, and they were devoted to it. The word devoted means to set yourself apart. Some of the translations say that they gave themselves over to the scriptures. Now think about that for a minute and ask yourself, where are you at in that? What's your devotion to the Bible? And I've said this before, and maybe it's wearisome at this point, I don't know, but I think a lot of us and all of us are tempted to do this. and Everybody struggles with it. Me too. There are certain parts of the Bible we like, certain parts we don't like so much. Where, where do we stand relative to the Bible? Because I think that's really the issue. I mean, is it a wisdom from another world that is greater than my wisdom and the wisdom of this world, or is it not? Is it the word of the Almighty God, the only one who knows everything, and therefore the only one who knows anything with certainty? Because unless you know everything, guys, there's always that possibility that there's something you've missed. Well, there's nothing God's missed. That's why he speaks infallibly. Is it his word to us that we stand under and gather under, realizing that it is the word of a God who spared not his son for us, therefore is he out to get us or is he for us? And is there anything that he will withhold from us that's good? 
May the Lord humble us before him and before his word. May he break us before himself and his word and place us rightly where we belong in the place of safety relative to his word, which is underneath it, receiving from it its meat and its drink. These guys devoted themselves to the Bible. But then to what else? They devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now, what's that? It's one another. They devoted themselves to each other. They were not a collection of individuals who gathered together in one room because they liked the music or whatever, and then left. They were a community of people who were fully integrated and did life together, and that's important because life is mission, and it's a mission that we are supposed to do together. In fact, that we can only do together. And look, this isn't the only place we find this. We see it taught expressly in other places. If you think about the analogies that the apostles used to describe the church of Jesus Christ, what are they? We are the bride of Christ. We're not the brides of Christ. He doesn't have a lot of brides. He has one. Think about that. We are the temple of God. And each one of us, Peter teaches us, are a living stone in that temple. We are one small part of the whole, but we're fully integrated into the whole. We're not a living stone that's over here, and then we got a living stone over there, and then one over there, and one over there, and then that house, and this neighborhood, and one building, one dwelling place. We're the body of Christ. I like that one the best. I just think that that's so comprehensible. I love the way the Spirit does that. He takes these things that we understand and goes, okay, here, this will help. You'll understand it. We're, We're the body of Christ, and every one of us is a part of the body, so we're taught. Which means that if we're not being a part of the body, then the body is deprived of that part. It's not whole. And it also means that if you're separated from the body, you know, that's a place of peril. I mean, if you think about it, and we're just going to use your finger today. If you cut your finger off, don't do this. Just play along with me, okay? If you cut your finger off, how well is it going to do? I mean, like, does your finger go on to do everything that it's supposed to do, you know, and fulfill all of its designs and purposes, and it's functional, and it's useful, and it's having a great life all on its own? Or does it die? Self-evident, isn't it? You are the body of Christ. Each one of you are a part of the body of Christ. Life is mission. You're to do it together as one body. Jesus is the head of the body, which is his church. And I think the way that plays out in my life and in your life is, okay, I'm looking at life. I'm saying, all right, life is mission, right? Good morning, Lord. I don't belong to me. I belong to you. That's a good thing. Okay. Here am I. Now what? I think what this is telling me, practically speaking, is that I need an I, for example, in my life. Somebody maybe other than my wife or maybe other than your husband, for example. Somebody other than a parent or a child who has insight into my life. Why? Because I know them and I give them that kind of access on purpose. I am purposefully transparent so that that person could use their gift in my life and can come to me and in love say, Tom, let me tell you about the pitfall that I see in the road you're traveling. You're not there yet, but you're right on the edge. Let me tell you about some of your blind spots. Let me give you insight into your character, into your relationships, into your ethics, into the way you're doing life that you might do it as mission more effectively. 
All of us need an eye. We all need an ear. Somebody who's going to listen to our whole story, no matter how long it takes, no matter how traumatic it may be, and who's going to love us at the end of the story, no matter what we may reveal. We all need a hand. Somebody who's going to help us out. Somebody who's going to pick us up. We all need a foot. Somebody who's going to walk beside us and kick us in the rear. We need a nose. Somebody who's going to help us stop and smell the roses and let us know if there's anything that smells not so much like roses going on in our lives. We need a heart, somebody whose love is true no matter what, and we know it. We need a mind, somebody who help us think through our lives that we might live them most purposefully for Christ as mission. Life is mission, and it's a mission that we're supposed to live together. In fact, that's the only way we can live it. And so Luke says again, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the Bible, so are you devoted to that, and to the fellowship, to each other, to a people. To a people, are you devoted to that? But then they were also devoted to the breaking of bread, which I think, I can't prove it, is likely at least a reference to the Lord's table. It seems almost like a term of art. It may refer to meals, and we'll see that they do eat together in a minute. But I think it has to do with coming to the Lord's table. By the way, there's one table, isn't there? One Lord, one God, one Spirit, one Gospel. One table at which Jesus has laid out the emblems of his suffering and death by which we receive life, by which we are forgiven. And he says, look, do this, meaning come to it regularly in remembrance of me and know this, that I, Jesus, will not drink from the blood of the vine, of the, vine, of the grapes, from the fruit of the vine, from the wine, if you will, again, until I return. It calls us to look back and to remember our forgiveness and whose we are and who we are as the people of God, not just as a person of God and of what our destiny is as well of the fact that we're on a mission. And then lastly, they were devoted to the prayers, which I think is probably a reference to the prayer habits that they already had as Jewish people and to the liturgical prayers that they already had as Jewish people as well, but which they now uniquely understood to refer to and be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, okay? And then he says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And now listen to what they did for one another, and don't just hear this academically as as if to say, Oh, that's interesting. That's the way they did things. Feel it. Weigh it out. Luke says, and all who believed, what? I made a list. All who believed, for example, that Jesus did not just forgive them, but purchase them with his blood. All who believe that Jesus is not just their Savior, but their Lord. All who believe that all that they have and all that they are belongs to Jesus. All who believed that everything they need in this life, they already have in Him. All who believe that they've been made children of God, sons and daughters of the King through faith in Jesus, and that their safety and security comes from Him. All who believe that this life is not the only life that there is and that they have an opportunity to invest their lives here and now in the things that will never die and in the end will amount to everything. All who believed that life is mission and that it's a mission that we're to live out together and that when the finger hurts, the whole body hurts. All who believed, he says, were together. That's how they did life and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
So now you're thinking, is that mandatory? Is that really part of the deal? Oh, look at the time, you know. Is it? Is it mandatory? Well, it is certainly praiseworthy. And it certainly is held before us as something that ought to happen when necessary. I mean, you know, again, go back to the body for a minute. When your finger, let's say we didn't cut it off, okay? But now it's infected. The poor finger's having a rough day with us today. The heart does not say about the finger, you know, this is the third time that finger has gotten infected, and this time, I don't think I'm going to send any blood to it at all. And the blood's like, oh, thank goodness, you know, because I got all these white blood cells, and I'm positive that I can cure that infection just like I did the other few times. But here's the thing. I mean, who knows what else might be happening in the body, and we might need some of these cells for later, and... It just happens because the finger is a part of the body. And when the finger hurts, the whole body hurts. It's a big deal. And it's a really big deal to this guy, Luke. When you begin to read through his writings, and by the way, between the book of Luke and Acts, Luke writes more of the New Testament than anyone else. He's the biggest contributor When you begin to look through his writings, one of the things you see is that he has a passion about our possessions. He wants to see us love each other and love the world more than we love our stuff. And he continually is reframing the whole conversation in ways that is very anti-American. He really does. So do you stand above the Bible or below it? Luke alone gives us the parable of the Good Samaritan. What's the story? You know it, don't you? The Samaritan's traveling the Jericho Road, dangerous road. He comes across a guy who's Jewish. Samaritans hate Jews. Jews hate Samaritans. This guy has obviously been robbed. Now, what is that evidence of? Robbers. This is not a good place to hang out. This is not when you want to stop. This is when you want to pick up your pace. He's already been passed by by two of his own people, men of the cloth even. Wow. Bleeding, lying, dying on the side of the road naked. And he stops. Risks himself. Risks having this happen to him. And even though he knows that this guy would never do the same for him, he cleans his wounds, he bandages them, he throws them up on his donkey. So now he's walking. And he calls his secretary and says, look, I got all these meetings, you know, set for tomorrow morning. And I know it took you like forever to get this set. And this is about to be a real bummer for you because I thought I was going to be home tonight, but I'm not going to be home tonight because I'm going up the Jericho road. And I came across this Jewish guy and he's been, no, yeah, I know. Yeah, no, I know he's Jewish. No, no, no. I get, no, I get it. No, I know he wouldn't do, you know what? Shh. Just reschedule everything. He calls his wife and says, honey, I, I know that you had plans to grill out tonight and finally I'm capable of making a contribution to dinner because I'm the grill master. It's all I know how to do. I'm limited. And you got stuff and you're ready to go and Junior has a game and we're supposed to and I should be back by 5.30 or we're not going to make the game and it starts at 7 and everything just got blown up for us tonight. Can you just make a plan B? Tell him I'll be there at the game on Wednesday instead. I came across this guy and he's dying and bleeding the whole deal and he's this Jewish guy and I thought... I know he's, no, I, yes, I, just stop for a second. I couldn't pass him by. He takes him to the hotel. He checks in. His dime. 
He stays up all night helping this guy out, moaning and groaning and changing his bandages and, you know, feeding him little bits of soup. I don't know, whatever. He wakes up the next day and he comes to the desk and the clerks in those days were notorious for being unethical. And he drops his American Express on the counter and says, okay, (laughs) I'm just going to have to trust the Lord on this one, I guess. This guy needs help. He's going to need to be bathed. He's going to need to be bandaged. He's going to need you to feed him. By that, I don't just mean, you know, stick it under the door. I mean, put it in his mouth. He's going to need to be nursed back to health. He might need for the doctor to come three or four more times. I have to go. I want you to do all of this for me, and I guess I'm just going to have to trust you because you can just put it all on this. That's nuts. Or is it? Luke alone gives us the parable of the rich man. Jesus tells the story. And as the story goes, coming out of the rich man's mouth, as Jesus would have it, here's his problem. I have too much. Now, does that ever happen? I mean, we talked a little bit about that last week, but like, do we ever think like that? So here's his solution. I have too much. I mean, I have way more than I need. I I don't even have any place to put everything that I have. Answer, notwithstanding the fact that there are people all around me who have nothing, I'm going to build bigger barns and keep it all for me. Do you know what we call that, guys? Sound financial planning. That's the idea. Let me read you the punchline of the story. Jesus says this in Luke 12, verse 20. He says, but God said to him, this man who's going to build bigger barns, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one, says our Lord, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Does that mean you can't have a barn or maybe a little bigger barn or that there isn't, you know, it's foolish to plan well financially and have savings and retire? No. But I think it does mean that we've got to stop and ask ourselves at some point, okay, Lord, Do I need a bigger barn or what do I need to do here? Like how much is enough? Because it's on the table, right? Good morning, Lord. I don't belong to me. Luke's really into this. He also gives us the parable of the banquet. And the man who is a wealthy man throws a banquet. He represents God. And he sends out this invitation. All these people are invited. Nobody comes. Why don't they come? Because they're caught up in their stuff. I have a field to plow, I have cattle to tend and all that stuff. And the banquet owner, the who is God, is furious about it, cancels their invitations and says, go out into the streets, find the poor, find the lame, find the people with nothing, bring them to my feast. Luke alone gives us the parable of the unjust manager, whom Jesus compliments for being shrewd. In the story, the manager has this little window of opportunity, which is analogous to my life and yours. It's a little window of opportunity. It's the way we're supposed to read the story. And during that little window of opportunity, this manager, you and me, has the privilege of managing his master's wealth, his master's wealth, you know, because it's his. And Jesus compliments this guy because he's like extravagantly generous with his master's wealth, which you can do when it actually belongs to someone other than you. And so he does that and he uses it in such a way so that when the window of opportunity is over and he no longer has his master's wealth and income and all that stuff to manage anymore and to sustain him, 
Oh, because he's been so generous with all these people out here. They're like welcoming him in. Hey, you can just move in. I got a whole wing of my house. You can live in here. Come to dinner. Let's hang out. We... Jesus says, brilliant. And then he speaks about the way we use our wealth and says, look, use it in such a way so that when your life is over, your window of opportunity is done, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. You will have made friends in heaven is the idea. You will have invested it in such a way that people end up there. Luke alone gives us the parable of the rich man and Lazarus who sits at the rich man's gate and smells his food coming out of the door and longs, it says, to eat the crumbs that fall from his table and doesn't get any and he dies. And then the rich man dies. And oh, how their fates are reversed. Luke longs to see us loving each other more than we love our stuff. And that's what the church here in Acts did. He says that all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And again, he's not saying, Thou shalt sell everything that I have and pooleth all of thy resources down at the church. That's not the message. But he is saying, Thou shalt not love thy stuff more than thy brother, and when thou seest thy brother in need, thou shalt help him. And he doesn't just say it to the wealthy people, guys. He doesn't. He says it to all of us. And I would ask you, which is more difficult? Is it easier to give out of your abundance or out of your poverty? So Luke says in Acts 2, verse 44, And all who believed were together and all had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day. So now what he does is he's going to give, a, give us a picture of the daily rhythm of their lives. What, what did they do day by day? Well, first of all, it says attending the temple together. You're like, again, hey, um, what's with the temple? Because I thought they were Christians now. Why are they going to the temple? Well, because they have 3,120 people on day one of their church. That's an ever-increasing number, and they don't have a building. It was very common in those days for rabbis and all of their disciples to meet in the temple courts, which are massive, huge, and that's where they would gather for their teaching. That's where they would gather here for their corporate worship, if you will. But they didn't just gather every day for corporate worship. They gathered every day in homes. They, to use our language, plugged into community groups as well. It's fascinating because he then goes on and says, and breaking bread in their homes, which again, I think is a reference to the Lord's Supper, though clearly now we see that they ate their meals together as well. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Having favor with all the people. Why? Because of their selfless sacrificial, generous lifestyles of mercy, both toward one another and toward the people in their city, taking the mercies of Jesus and the message of Jesus to these people. And here's the end result. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what is that a picture of? It's a picture of a group of people who really get it that life is mission, and it's a mission that we're to take together. And again, what were they devoted to? God's word, God's people to each other, God's table to communion, 
prayer, and what was the rhythm of their life? Well, they gathered for worship every day. Think about that. Then they broke out into their houses and they ate together and, and I think they partook of the elements together and in all likelihood they talked about whatever Peter had, you know, led them in in terms of his teaching and I'm just picturing John as a worship leader. I don't know, I think he's poetic, but it's just a guess. I don't have it on videotape and oh man, that With Everything song, I love that or whatever. I'm going to get the Live in Miami album. And what else? They gave themselves away in radical, selfless service to each other and to the world that they and that we are called to reach with the mercies and message of Christ. And the end result, again, to use our language, is that the Lord was not only leading them into a growing relationship with Jesus as they did these things together, as they took advantage of the eyes and the ears and the nose and the mouths and the foot and the whole that in their life together, but other people as well were being led into a growing relationship with Christ. So life is mission, and it's a mission that we're to live out together. But here's what you're thinking. And if you're not thinking it, I'll just tell you, I'm thinking it. Sounds great, but where in the world am I going to find the time for that? Seriously. That is, I think, the biggest issue. It's a time issue, you know, and here's what we assume. We assume, hey, Tom, these people back then, not a lot to do, man. I mean, clearly they had a lot more time on their hands than we do. All right, let's work through that for a second. How many of you, you can just raise your hand on this one. How many of you have a dishwasher? Anybody? Okay. They didn't have that. In fact, they didn't even have a sink. They didn't have running water. Good grief, they had to go get their water on foot every day. You have a bathroom? I'm going to go with yes on that. No raising of hands. You are a well-showered group. Shower? Wait a minute, they didn't have that either. Fascinating. We buy our food at a grocery store. We get enough for like a whole week. We can do that because it has preservatives in it and it's canned and bottled and all that jazz. And more than that, we put it in our car and we take it home we put it in our freezer, in our refrigerator. Some of us even have like an extra freezer in the garage. How sweet is that? That's awesome. Do you know what they had? Nothing. Zero, zip, nada. We cook it in an oven. They're like, an oven? What's that? We zap it in a microwave. That would blow their mind. We mix it up with blenders and food processors and all kinds of jazz that they had no idea about. You know, I mean, they made their clothes. We go to Old Navy or whatever. They educated their kids. We, or they, I mean, yeah, and we don't. We send them to school. We also have convenient little devices by which we can send messages to anyone in the world like that and through which we can organize our schedules as efficiently as possible. And look, I realize that with all the free time, that all that stuff frees up for us, we've filled that all with 100,000 other things. I'm not saying we're less busy than them, but I am saying that they were really busy people too, and oftentimes they were busy with things that were not at all negotiable. Got to go get the water today. They were busy, we are busy. But they understood life is mission. It's a mission we live together. And they were committed to the mission. 
and to one another. And you got to weigh yourself by that and consider your schedule. So here's what I want you to do, if you will indulge me. I'd like you to examine what you're devoted to. Examine it, because there's only so much of you. And examine your rhythm of life, and then do what's necessary to make the space for things, for example, like personal worship, starting tomorrow morning. Where you get a Bible, if you don't have one, you get it today in the back. Where you go online, print out the deal, and it shows you how it is that you can engage in a thoughtful, slow, meaningful way with God's Word, the same Word that we're going to talk about next Sunday and then meet in a community group to talk about shortly thereafter. I would encourage you to make space for that. Word and prayer, word and prayer, word and prayer. I would encourage you to be more than casually associated with Sunday morning, with gathering with God's people, because life is mission and it's to be done well together, which implies that you're here and you're a part of it. I would encourage you, if you haven't done it, to plug into a community group. It's all online. You don't have to write any of this down. It's there. It's easy to do. Look, these guys met every day. You know, you're like, oh, man, every week, when am I going to do that? You know, we take the summers off and the holidays. Give it a shot for like a semester. Seriously. How will you serve in Christ's kingdom? Do you know? Figure out if you're an ear, a nose, an eye, a mouth, a heart, a foot, a whatever. That's online too. Find your thing, do your thing. It's like a gift assessment. It will help you understand how God has made you and gifted you, wired you. If you can go to Haiti, we rolled out four trips last week. Go to Haiti, and here's what's going to happen. You're going to go over there thinking about all the things you don't have, and you're going to come back a wealthy person no matter who you are in this room. Guaranteed. You'll be thinking about your barn. If you look at your finances and you say, good grief, man, what am I going to do with this? I've got to get a control of this. I need a budget. I need to, I need to figure out how to get my spending under control. I need to figure out how to pay down this debt. I need to take hold of, of savings. I need to start saving. I need to develop some margin in my life so that I can actually meet the needs of the people I find lying on the side of the road, figuratively speaking, usually. We have a financial peace class that's starting. February 24, if you're looking at Rio and you've been here a few times and you're like, ah, what is this church all about? We have a starting point class starting February 24. It's all online. And you don't have to join if you go to the class, but if you do want to join, you have to go to the class. Resources and opportunities available to us, afforded by the community. Why? Because life is mission, guys. And I'm not meant to go off and live my mission on my own, and you're not meant to go off and live your mission on your own. We're meant to live our mission together. In fact, in fact, that's the only way it works. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you're not calling individuals, but a people. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of your church, the blessing of relationship that we get to enjoy through our one Savior and one Spirit and one table and so forth. The ways that you work through people, God, by your Spirit in each one of our lives and the opportunities that you give us to work 
in the lives of other people in ways that are meaningful and purposeful and make a difference. God, I pray that you would capture us with life as mission and life together as mission, that you would break down our isolation and individualism and realize, help us to realize that we are part of an organic whole that you're leading. And we have the opportunity to do something with our little lives that matters forever. Do these things we ask and pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.